many of you, we've been in this series as in the days of Noah, so I'm going to do it this way. How many of you have been here for at least one of the messages in this series? Let me just kind of look around a little bit, okay? Most of us have been here for at least one message. So for those of you that are just jumping in for the first time today, I'm going to do a really quick refresh, and I might make a couple of extra statements in it just to, just to kind of help, but we are on, we're on week seven, and so I realize you're like, oh my gosh, where, what have they been talking about? But you will be able to follow it as we go along. I'll, just, I'll, give you, I'll let you know right now, this all comes from Genesis chapter 6, where we read about giants being on the earth. And most of us have read in our Bibles that when they went to the promised land, there were giants in the promised land. And even after they were in the promised land, Saul and his, or excuse me, David and his armies fought giants. It was a part of Israelite history. And yet for some reason we think that might've just been one random person here and there because a couple of crazy people got together. But it's so much more than that. So I'm gonna walk you through that and I'm asking God to bless it and uh, to give us what he has today, okay? So here's the verse that we've been using and I'm gonna go through this quickly and to get into stuff that I have for you today. I'm going to give you one more caveat because it's what I do. Um, how many think that pastors are supposed to have all the answers? Okay, just three of you. All right, thank you, David. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, so, inside joke. Um, so, thank you so much for... I, no, there's not a pastor up that's, that's omniscient. There's just not. There's not a parent that's omniscient. Parents, what, can I get an amen? You don't know everything. Just doing the best you can, right? Just doing the best you can. We don't know everything. We're walking through it. We're trying to do the best that we can. And honestly, leaders and pastors are doing that. Apostles and evangelists, they're doing that. And we get off target sometimes. Um, and I say that today to let you know some of the things that I'm going to be bringing up, I don't have the answers for. I'm not up here to try to answer everything. I'm up here to, to bring up some things in Scripture, and some of it you might even go, well, that's a little bit uncomfortable, and, and that's okay. Um, there's a lot in God's Word that makes me uncomfortable, and He works on my heart and my flesh and my mind. So no one knows, Jesus says, no one knows about the day or the hour, not even the, sun, or the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And this is referring to when He comes back again. Jesus says, I don't even know that. And we talked last week that perhaps because Jesus left eternity and put on humanity and came into time, how many know that God's above time? He's timeless. Jesus put himself in time when he put on humanity. So perhaps as part of his sacrifice for us, he laid aside timelessness and doesn't necessarily know when he's coming back. Just an idea. But he says, the angels don't know, I don't know, only the Father knows. But then he gives us this hint, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the day the flood came and took them away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And we've talked about this in great length. There are people that were living like everything was normal, while at the same time on the planet, you have corruption of, of demonic proportions taking place. And we're going to look in this together, but I'll get there in just a second. So here's your refresh. And then there's lots of stuff today for you to jot down and you to take home and to share with your kids over your Bible time. All right. Here's your refresh. Number one, Genesis 3.15. This is the word when God spoke to the serpent and said to him, 
Um, the seed of woman is going to crush your seed. Every theologian says it's the first prophecy that, that Jesus was, the Messiah was going to be born of a woman. Everybody says that. But what's interesting is we don't tend to look at the latter part of that that says that the seed of woman is going to crush your seed. Huh. Who's the seed of the serpent? We start walking through this. I'm going to put enmity between Satan and the woman. He announced that he was putting enmity between Satan's offspring and her offspring. Number two. When we understand God's announcement, and the announcement is that the Messiah is going to come from woman. When we understand God's announcement, it kind of gives us insight into Satan's strategy to try to prevent God's promise of redemption. Think about it this way. If Satan hears that through woman his own destruction is going to come, isn't there a chance that he would attack women? And I'll just be honest with you. If you look around our globe, women are always under assault. They're always under assault. It's only places where the gospel of Christ is presented that women are elevated at all. They're always kept down as subordinate. They're always considered less than until the gospel comes into a community and it begins to transform it. And Paul says things like this, in Christ Jesus, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free. We, it is level at the foot of the cross. Jesus liberates people, but the, Satan, uh, the initial strategy of the enemy was to oppress women, to attack women. Number three, he desired to do this by corrupting the seed of woman, the gene pool, to prevent the birth of a pure, corruption-free redeemer. If my destruction's going to come through a lineage, Satan thinking to himself, then I'm going to corrupt that lineage so that I'm not destroyed. And that's when we get to number four, Genesis chapter six, verses one through four. And this is in your Bibles, we've all read it. We learn that fallen angels forcibly took women. They raped women. I mean, how insane is this? And the result was Nephilim spreading through the earth. They were strong, they were powerful, they were genetically altered. Number five, Nephilim is derived from the Hebrew word nephal meaning fallen one, or deserter, or cast out. Uh, number six, the Greek word for Nephilim is gigantes. You can hear gigantic in that, can't you? But it's more than just gigantic. It's the root word for genes, gene, genealogy, and genetics. So here's what we're saying. At the time of Noah, fallen angels were forcibly taking women and they were bringing corruption to the human race. They were genetically altering people. Gigantes or gigantes is where we get the word titan. Demigod. Half God, half man. It comes from that word. They, scripture even says they were men of renown. They were heroes of old, meaning they did things that were unexplainable. Let me just throw this out there for the fun of it. Did you know that, that one of the skulls that was found in the land of Bashan. Have you ever read in Psalm 22 about the bulls of Bashan encompass me? In the land of Bashan, they found a skull that has a circumference of 36 inches. 36 inches. This is pre-bobblehead days. How big is the brother that's got a 36-inch head? I love Pastor Josh. We've worked together for years and we're friends. And I'm just going to call, so he knows it's true, but the Ortigo boys, when they're born, they're born with these beautiful melons on the top of their shoulders. 
And the first one, you're like, whoa, hope he grows into it. And he did. The second one, whoa, hope he grows into it. And he is. The third one, it happened again. Haley looked at me and said, we're three for three. Now they get there. When we're talking about a 36-inch head, proportion that out. How massive is this person? No wonder they were forcible. No wonder there was great wickedness. No wonder, I mean, it's just, it's kind of stunning. Number seven, <laughs> Noah found favor with God. Thank God. Noah found favor. And God's word says that Noah was two things. He was Sadiq and he was Tamim. Hebrew words for he was righteous and he was blameless. Righteous referring to his spiritual walk. Blameless actually referring to his body. He was blemish-free. Another way you could translate it is without taint. His genetic. Have you ever noticed that we've got a genealogy from Adam to Noah? It's because we get to follow a pure genealogy to know this line had been protected and kept safe. So, number eight, the offspring of fallen angels, angels were dealt with on a large scale by the flood. When people ask me, Pastor Brad, if God's so loving, how could he flood the earth? I would say it's because there were so many fallen angels and their offspring corrupting the planet that God dealt with it on a massive level. It wasn't about people. It was about hybrids, which leads to number nine. Uh, the offerings of, uh, of fallen angels were dealt with uh, on a large scale by the flood. And then God's faithful warriors fought against the offspring of fallen angels as they each attempted to occupy the promised land. Do you remember when they're standing outside the promised land and the 10 explorers come back and what do they say? We seem like what? Grasshoppers. Now how big are these people if you feel like a grasshopper? You, put, you proportion it out, somebody with a 36 inch head, you can start calculating this. It's insane. No wonder they were so intimidated. And yet Joshua and Caleb weren't. Joshua and Caleb said, it's a good land. God's promised, promised us the land. We can take it. I don't care how big these people are. Have you ever read in scripture where God told Joshua to destroy the Amorites? It's like, destroy the Amorites. If you read about the Amorites, it says in scripture they were descendants of the Rephaim, which were descendants of the Nephilim. They destroyed the Amorites, not just because they were a bunch of miserable people that liked to drink all the time. No. They destroyed the Amorites because they were hybrid giants that were trying to occupy and block the promises of God. And God's word says more died as hailstones were thrown from heaven than were killed by Joshua and his army. When God sent his people to face the Amorites, when they were willing to step into that situation, God stepped into that situation. And I want you to know if you want to see God step in, you've got to step out. And when Joshua led the army and they stepped, into, or stepped out into battle, God stepped in. Hailstones came from heaven. How come? They were fighting giants. And God said, I'm going to deliver my people. And he did. And number 10. This is where we're going to kind of wrap up today. Next week, we won't have a refresh, a renew, a revisit. We're going to do it differently next week. But the offspring of fallen angels are still on the earth in a futile attempt to block the conclusion of God's final redemptive plan. That's where I want to spend my time today. Look with me back at Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. We've done a lot of talking. We've referred to some verses, but let's, let's look at them. Okay? They, they don't talk about this stuff at Christian school. I'll just let you know. All right, This isn't Christian school stuff. It'll, it'll scare them to death. Genesis 6, 1 through 2. 
uh, we used this when we got started on weeks, I think weeks two and three. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the earth, on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, notice, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, they were gorgeous, and they took them wives, all of which they chose. Now, notice that I used the King James Version here, and I, I don't do that all the time, but I, I used it here, and in my opinion, it's because the way it wrote, it stayed more true to the text here. Now, when we think about marriage, we tend to think about pronouncement. I, Brad Riley, by the authority conferred upon me by the assemblies of God and by the laws of the state of Missouri, do pronounce you husband and wife, no longer two, but now one, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Right? And what power, which is just nothing. It's just... God's word, marriage was consummation. It's when the man and the woman came together and they consummated the relationship. That's when marriage took place, okay? Uh, think about Abraham sent his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac. And the servants bring him back Rebecca and they're riding on a couple of camels. Notice they weren't smoking them, but they were riding on a couple of camels. And as they get back, she looks up and she's like, who's that? And Isaac's, He's like recognizing the cars that are driving by. He's like, I think that's our camel, right? I think he's like, I just got new chrome. So he's like, I think that's ours. And, 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 and so he starts walking toward him. And Rebecca says to the servant, who's that guy? And he's like, oh, that's the servant. Of, uh, that's the son of my master. So, oh, that's my future husband. So it says that she immediately covered her face, kind of mysterious. And he comes up and he says, who's this? And he says, this is your wife. And he says, hi, nice to meet you. And they went into his mom's tent and wham, bam, and promised land, they're married. I mean, there's no true love waits. There's no take a ring and make a pledge. There's, I, it is like, hello, we are married, okay? Now, it is, it's amazing to think. How many, how many could practice self-control if it took like 10 minutes to get to the tent? How many could? You're not being honest, people. You went through a season, all right? You're not being honest right now, okay? And what did they have? Did they have a priest come in? Did they put incense on him, holy water, spit? What did they? No. They went into a tent, and they were married. Two became one. A soul tie was formed. A covenant was formed. So I, I'll just throw this out there. Since we're not on WebStream, I can be more real. You know I'm usually pretty conservative. But since we're not on WebStream, I'll throw this out there. If you joined yourself with a person or two or more before you were married, you've been forgiven of that a long time ago. But if you still feel like you're carrying baggage in your life, one of the things that sometimes will lead people to look into is to say, Lord, do I still have a soul tie with a person that I was with before? Because a covenant's formed. Actually, God made it that way because he wants when a husband and wife to come together, he wants there to be no stronger bond than that. He wants you to be one. I've seen it happen before where a cute, sweet little girl starts dating this nice-looking pig-headed, ornery guy, and about a month and a half after they start dating, all of a sudden, she's not so sweet and nice anymore, but she's ornery and pig-headed, and it doesn't take a lot of discernment to go, wow, they've made covenant with one another. They've made covenant. There's a soul tie, okay? So, can you be forgiven? Yes. Can God restore? Yes. Do soul ties need to be broken? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Listen, if you're in a second marriage and you're struggling, you're in a second, and you're, I want you to know, you might need to even in a prayer time renounce the covenant you had in your first marriage. It's just part of it. Now, what does this have to do with this? Well, everything. Because most of your translations say that the sons of God took the daughters of men and they married them. And it's so beautiful, and you see the pronouncement, and we throw rice, and we have cake. But that's not what it was in the original, and the King James did a good job when it said they took them. The women did, this isn't something they wanted to be a part of. This was someone, well, they became a wife. Well, yeah, in the strictest sense, when you consummate with a woman, she's now your wife. Okay? But I wasn't pronounced marriage. It didn't matter. Consummation took place. From who? The fallen angels that shed their humanity. Well, Pastor Brad, this actually says sons of God. Well, let me remind you, the Hebrew word here is ben ha Elohim. Ben ha Elohim, right? Ben, son, ha of Elohim, God. It's the phrase that was used for angels throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again, angels. Until we get to Genesis 6 and we go, ooh, I don't want to use the word angel there because that's creepy. Okay? So, we have fallen angels taking the daughters of men. Remember the phrase? Bath, daughter, ha, of Adam, Adam, the daughters of Adam. We're talking about two races of people. Now, the reason I come back to this, I want you to know women didn't choose this. Fallen angels chose this. Satan's plan chose this. There wasn't covenant in the sense that they both chose one another, but there was union in this, that was forced. That has, it has a lot to do with Daniel chapter 2. So let's go to Daniel chapter 2. Now, I mentioned this last week, but I'm going to sum it up pretty quickly this week. And then I'm going to share some things with you I don't have the answers for. But we'll figure it out, Okay. Uh, you guys know Daniel was serving Neb Neb Nebuchadnezzar because Israel had been exiled into Babylon. Everybody remember that story? So Daniel's a man that loves God. And it's interesting, God, if, if you'll walk with God, God will elevate you into positions of influence. Nebuchadnezzar was the most wicked ruler of his day, and yet Daniel was one of his advisors. That's kind of remarkable when you think about it. We tend to curse the, the leader and want to pull away from him. And the Lord's strategy is bless the leader, let God bring you into that role, and now you can give godly counsel to ungodly people. How cool would that be? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have ungodly people making godly decisions because of the counsel of the men and women of God? I think that'd be pretty cool. So Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Now, I love the fact that he talked about that with his advisors. Think about it. This is a, a wicked king, and yet he had a dream that he was like, this is more than natural. He knew something was up. Tell me God doesn't still do that today, okay? He knew something was up. And in the dream, there's a head of gold, and there's silver and bronze and lions and tigers, there's, right? There's just all this stuff. Daniel comes in, and he interprets the dream. And he says, hey, the head's gold. That's you, almighty king. It's Babylon. Now, let me remind you of something. How many know that Babylon is not just a natural kingdom, but it's a supernatural kingdom? The, the kingdom of the enemy is referred to as Babylon over and over again. 
I'm just going to go into a thing about language for a moment that I find intriguing. If you don't like this at all, we're just about done with this series and you're going to be able to get through it and just count it as a few years out of purgatory if you believe in it, okay? So you can do that if you want to. But I like following language a little bit. I find it incredibly interesting that there's a bar off of Mid-Rivers Mall in Cottleville called the Babylon. I find that interesting. I find it interesting that the Pueblo Indians down in the southwest of the United States, when their four nations would come together, their capital city that was built around and dated back to the same time when Moses was on the other side of the earth writing about there being giants after the flood, that there was a city that they, they called their capital Babylon. Why do they call their capital Babylon? Why do we call bars Babylon? You think a bar owner went, hey, we need a good name. Let's research. Oh, Babylon. I like that wicked perversion and do you realize how many times people are directed by spirits and they don't even know it? They're directed by spirits, so they don't even know it. If, if you watch the stock market at all, when the market is growing, what, do they, what kind of market do they refer to that as? A bull market. Bullish. Why do they use that? Why is the bull the symbol for financial strength? Do, do you know that they would worship in Babylon... They would worship Baal, who was the image of a bull that they believed was their financial provision. How many remember the company Merrill Lynch and their code line used to be, or their slogan was, a breed apart, and then the bull would come walking out. Why is a bull a symbolism of financial strength? Because there's a spirit behind it. Why, why, why not a rabbit? I mean, what I hear, there's nothing that multiplies like a rabbit. If you, how many know if you have two rabbits, you got 20, right? I mean, wouldn't that be better for your finances? Wouldn't they be, man, the market's great. I know, it's like a bunny. <laughs> it's, woo! I mean, my funds are multiplying. Hallelujah, I'm hop, hop, hopping all the way to the bank and going on vacation, right? Why not, why not a bunny? Because there's a spirit behind it. Guys, language is a big deal. Any Cardinal baseball fans in here? Even when they're struggling, right? We are. How many of you grew up listening to the radio, the Cardinal games? Jack Buck, Mike Shannon, even Harry Carey before he, he lost his salvation and went to the Cubbies, right? You remember that? Got the big glasses and still couldn't see. But anyway, I, I did like a lot of people did. I grew up in Columbia and we, we, we only got a, a baseball game on TV every other Sunday. So man, the game, you listen to it on the radio. I remember going camping in, in Southern Missouri. We're in Alley Spring and uh, we were on the countdown for Lou Brock to get his 3,000th hit. Anybody remember those days? We were counting down for that 3,000th hit. And I remember being around the campfire, and Grandpa had an AM radio in his Chevy truck. And we had the doors open. We had that radio turned up as loud as we could. We're listening. Is Lou going to get his 3,000th hit? And not only were we, but so was every other campsite in the valley. And I remember when he got his 3,000th hit, the valley erupted. It's just crazy. How many remember Jack Buck saying he caught that one like, uh, like he caught a can of corn? Remember that? Ooh, there's a little pop fly. He caught it like a can of corn. I remember I was watching a game one time, and I said, man, he caught that like a can of corn. And Beth looked at me, and she said, you're a moron. <laughs> I'm like, what? She goes, what do you mean he caught it like a can of corn? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm like, well, dumber than the last thing I said that you said was the dumbest thing that you had ever heard? She's like, you have an ability. You just progress. It's amazing. I'm like, well, Jack Buck used to say it on the Cardinal games. He caught it like a can of corn. Well, what does it even mean? Well, I happened to be listening to the Cardinal game like one night when he referred and he said, he caught it like a can of corn. And Mike Shannon said, 
hey, what do you mean by catching like a can of corn? And Jack said, well, back in the day when there was a general store and you had an owner that was working the counter, lots of times you would take the bigger items that, that weren't bought as frequently and you would put them up on the top shelf and you'd put the big cans of beans and the big cans of corn up on the top shelf and somebody might come in every once in a while and they'd say, hey, I'd like that can of corn and the owner would walk over behind the counter and he'd grab his stick that was about six feet long and he'd walk over and he'd get the stick under the edge of that can and he would start moving it forward until the can fell. He'd lift his apron and he would just catch it like a can of corn. It's just a little pop-up, no big deal. How many just learned something about Cardinal Baseball? Isn't that cool? Isn't that fun? These phrases that we use, catch it like a can of corn. Have you ever heard, give them the whole nine yards? And you're football fans and you're like, well, if you only get nine yards, you still need another yard for a first down. Why not give them the whole 10 yards? Well, because the fir first cement mixers only held nine yards. So how much cement do you need? Give them the whole nine yards. It means give them, your, give them everything you got. That's all you got. These phrases develop from somewhere, Okay. When we talk about titans and demigods and language, why, why would Babylon just pop up into the existence of communities all around the earth if there wasn't something behind it? How come Aristotle, if you read any of his philosophies, could be philosophizing around the city gate with the community leaders and refer to the giants of Sardinia and just keep talking and nobody goes, hey, moron, there's no such thing as giants. How come he, could, how come he refers to the giants? How come he refers to, to the Greek explorers landing on the island of Sardinia, facing giants and fleeing for their own lives because the people were bigger than could be measured? And nobody goes, wait a second, you're out of your mind. You're smoking stuff. And now we go, ah, Roman mythology. Is, is it perhaps that there was a lot of truth that got twisted? How many know that Satan likes to counterfeit so that when the genuine's presented, we don't recognize it. I've shared with you before, there was a day prophetic words were being given in here, and a gentleman spoke against the church later and said it was like being with a bunch of psychics. And I thought to myself, a psychic would love to be with us. Because a psychic is a counterfeit to the true prophetic. Beth and I were in Ireland last year. There's something that she had shared with me. Nobody else, and our kids, nobody else knew. And this lady asked to pray for us. And how many of you, when somebody asks to pray for you, how many of you look to the pastor or leader and make sure it's okay? We're in Pastor Noel's church, and this lady said, I'd like to pray with you. And we both look at Noel, and he's like, it's good, it's good, it's good. And she prayed over us, and she spoke a blessing. And at the end, she spoke a word to Beth. The only two people that knew that were she and I. She said, oh, and by the way, and we were like, Oh, how many know the enemy likes to counterfeit the genuine so we don't receive the genuine when it's available? Now, here's where I'm going with this. Scripture talks about giants over and over again, and we put it into the fictitious metaphorical teaching of the scriptures rather than realizing that history is there for a reason. I had our, several of our leaders over to, uh, on Friday, leaders in, of the Assemblies of God in our area, and we got talking about this subject, and maybe I should say I got talking about this subject, and they were staring at me like I was crazy, right? Like some of you did the second week, okay? Babylon, 
Babylon's a natural kingdom, but it's a kingdom that rises because it's the kingdom of the enemy coming against Jesus over and over again. And we get to the, the feet, right? Whereas, King James again, thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it the strength of iron for as much as thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. But they shall not cleave to one another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Every theologian says that the, the feet, iron and clay, represent the kingdom of the Antichrist. The first kingdom is the head, it's, it's uh, Nebuchadnezzar, it's Babylon. The other ones we could argue about, was that Greece, was that Rome, was, was that Ireland, I, I don't know. But we all agree, begins with Babylon, and it ends with the spiritual Babylon, the kingdom of the Antichrist. And when we read about that kingdom, it says, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not what? Cleave. Cleave is a word, are you ready? For marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. You leave and you cleave. How many went through premarital counseling? And the pastor or the leader said something like, now listen, man, you've chosen her and you choose her every, your, every day. You love your mama, you honor your mama. You love your dad and you honor your dad, but you're no longer mama's boy. You're no longer daddy's boy. You have chosen this woman, and you leave and you cleave. That is where your first priority is now. You and God, you and your wife. Have you heard that kind of counsel? It's good counsel. How many are still married to a mama's boy? Let's go ahead and we'll deal with it right now. Let's find out. Let's do it, okay? The reason I mention this, this goes all the way back to the same thing in Genesis 6. They took women, but they weren't married. Again, they mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they don't cleave. Now, I got some stuff I'm a little uncomfortable with, but why not? It's good to be on Facebook where everybody can share it and, and enjoy. Good to see you. All right, so um, I'm a little uncomfortable with this. And how many know if I'm uncomfortable, it's going to get crazy in here? Okay, all right. Satanic groups practice a doctrine to them called the fifth bride of Satan. They, satanic groups around the earth, keep a lady in waiting for when Satan sheds his octarion, his spiritual habitation, and joins himself with a woman, and that offspring, they believe, is going to defeat Jesus. So that's what they're looking for, in my opinion, for the Antichrist. So the satanic church believes this. Um, it's also something I find interesting because, once again, if, if can of corn means something, it came from somewhere, give them the whole nine yards, it came from somewhere, then I'm like, well, why is it the fifth bride of Satan? I don't have an answer for that. Why is it the fifth? Uh, did they think there was a fourth? Did they think there was a third? Is it just a title? I, I doubt it's just a title. There's probably a meaning behind it. And to be honest with you, I don't really care for the satanic church much, so I don't really want to dig into it. But it's a question that comes to my mind. Why, why that? Um, how many remember me teaching you about the Septuagint? 
How many thinks I just spoke in tongues and you're waiting on an interpretation? Okay, all right. The Lord loves you, my people. Times are hard, saith the Lord. Sometimes it's so hard, I don't think I can make it myself. Ah, right, no. So, Septuagint. Septuagint, just to remind you, it's the number 70. 300 BC, 70 Jewish rabbis who spoke what language? Hebrew. 70 Jewish rabbis pulled together for 15 years and they translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek. Why did they do that? Because they saw the influence of Greece and they wanted people to have the scriptures, which by the way, I think is remarkable when we hear so often about the Israelites isolating themselves and yet there were a group of them that went, we need the scriptures in the language of the common man. I think that's amazing. And we've talked about it before. So my question is, not how would Brad Riley interpret Hebrew, but how would a Hebrew interpret Hebrew into Greek? And also then, I don't necessarily want to be the one to interpret the Greek, so thankfully other people have done that. What I'm going to share with you is from the Septuagint. What, Pastor Brad, what's the Septuagint? It's simply this. The Old Testament Hebrew has been translated into a Greek Old Testament, and then we translated it into English. So it's the translation of the Old Testament from the Greek into English. Everybody with me? Let's look at Isaiah chapter 13, and let's just kind of let our minds be blown together. Uh, Isaiah is transliterated. That would be the, the Hebrew name for Isaiah, okay? That's why I've used the brackets here. The vision which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw against who? Babylon. Okay? By the way, at the time that Isaiah shared this, the first destruction of Babylon had already taken place. The first deliverance, I mean, there's still more going on all the time. Lift up a standard on the mountain of the plain. Exalt the voice to them. Beckon with the hand. Open, ye rulers. I give command and I bring them. Giants are coming to fulfill my wrath, rejoicing at the same time and insulting. Notice the LXX, that is Roman numerals, because the Septuagint is commonly referred to as the 70. So that's what that is. Now, if you look this up in the NIV, instead of using the word giant, it says warriors which the word that was used was never a word for warrior, but we've used it there. Some of them say, they even go as far as to say strong warriors. Oh, thank you. Okay, that makes it better. As a matter of fact, if you look at the New American Standard, the NASB, the NIV, the KGV, the NKJV, the TNIV, the NIV, the LMNOP, the LBQ, whatever, none of them say it, only the one in the Septuagint says it. And what I find interesting, how many of you remember our second week when I taught you the word Gabor? Remember, they were the giants or the men of renown, the heroes of old, they were the Gabor. The reason that these authors translated it as giants is because it's the word Gabor. It's the word that they used previously to say, there were giants among us. And Isaiah says that one of these days, something's coming against Babylon and giants are going to be released. PB, do you have an answer for this? No, I've just given you more questions. 
First of all, I, I just find it remarkable. I also think it's interesting when it says, um, the voice to, uh, to them, beckon with the hand, open. Most of your translations, you'll read it'll say, open the gates. We added the gates in there because the context for that word open, it was obvious that they were opening up a portal, opening up a gate, opening up something. But in the strictest sense, it was just simply the word open. Now, I'm going to share some things, and you can call me crazy. Thank you. Um, you can do it. And I'm not saying this is right. I'm saying this is stuff that you should think about. The Pueblo Indians, their capital that was called Babylon, in their culture of medicine men, which we know are, are spiritualists, they're not necessarily walking with Jesus, you know that. But they talk about the, the coming of the fourth age. Now, we don't talk about the coming of the fourth age, but in their, the way they look at things, they talk about the coming of the fourth age. And they believe that they've opened a portal in the Southwest and that there are other portals available that when the voice is given, the giants will return to the earth. They believe that. They believe the fourth age is when the giants come back. Why do I bring this up to you on a Sunday morning, seeker-sensitive service, very simple, not trying to offend anyone? Why do I do that? Um, first of all, because everything I just said was sarcasm, right? That's the first reason. The second reason, it bothers me, and would you go back to Daniel chapter 2 for me for just a second, John? It bothers me when it says, they shall mingle and they shall not cleave. Because that's a word reflecting more than one. It's, it already bothers me to think that Satan has an offspring, but I see that in Genesis 3.15, so why would I question it? But literally, this says that they. Is it possible that not every fallen angel cohabitated before the flood? Well, yeah, it's possible because we see them after the flood. Is it possible that there are still fallen angels that haven't yet? That the enemy is waiting for the final battle when Jesus comes back to put his feet on the Mount of Olives. Now, how many of you have ever read about the Battle of Armageddon? How many of you have ever read about blood being as high as the, the bridle of a horse? I've never really been able to put my mind around that. I don't think that uh, Jesus is coming back to kill people. That's not the loving Savior that I serve. But is it possible that they've mingled themselves with the seed of men and the final Babylonian empire of the Antichrist has giants that are a part of it? And Yeshua literally comes back, the offspring of woman, and he defeats the offspring of, the Satan, of Satan? Is it possible? It is. Um, let's go back to Isaiah there for a second, Isaiah 13. If you want to look this up for yourself, you can Google it. You'll have to look it up under the Septuagint. You might even just look it up with the, the Roman numerals. It's a little bit easier to find. Um, let, let, me kind of ramp, let me ramp this up. It's, 10, it's 1227. Let's go to the few random thoughts that I have, John. Just a few things I'm going to throw at you. Do you guys like the kind of the messages with no answers? Okay, all right, good. Thank you, I'm glad. Thanks for answering. 
<laughs> All right. A uh, few random thoughts. Number one, it took two men to carry a cluster of grapes. Food was altered. Do you realize that engineers of today still can't explain how the pyramids were built? They're like, they didn't have the equipment. They didn't have this. They didn't have that. They're, we don't know how those people that size could have done it because it probably wasn't people. Do you realize that there are pyramids on every continent of the planet? They're at different locations, and they're made of gigantic stones. You can search all of this yourself. It is there. They're made of stones that people will stand and look at these stones, stones that are 20 feet by 18 by 16, and they're put in with another one, and they're so perfectly put together that you can't even get a piece of paper through them, and they don't have mortar. Actually, it's interesting. They call it Cycloptean masonry. Cycloptean masonry. Isn't it wild that the symbol for masonry is a pyramid with one eye? I'm sure it's just a phrase. It took, <laughs> it took two men to carry a cluster of grapes. Has anybody else noticed that the, the way that we're working on food, it's getting a little bit bigger? And I'm not just talking about our appetites. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to get crazy with this. But just, have you noticed that, I mean, grapes aren't meant to be the size of an orange. But the way we're pumping them full of stuff, we're going to get them there. Right? I, I even wonder, with our, the genetic manipulation that we're doing, does that show, I mean, it wasn't the same type of thing, but my goodness, we're, we're, we're engineering and genetically manipulating just about everything. How about this? Human genetics were being... Uh, created and manipulated through the influence of fallen angels. Three, fallen angels were taking women. Just some random thoughts. Have you ever uh, watched a story on the Discovery Channel where they talk about alien abductions? You ever, I mean, come on, it's okay to admit it. Have you ever watched it? And you're like, man, those people are crazy. But have you ever noticed that they all draw the same picture? And have you ever noticed that it looks like a demon? Have you ever noticed that? We've walked enough people through the deliverance ministry. I've dealt with enough things that sometimes they draw these pictures. I'm like, that looks like a, that looks like a spirit. It's like a demonic spirit. I'm just wondering. Let me, let me throw this at you. I've got five more minutes, and um, I'm having to look at my notes because my memory's not as good as it used to be. Craig Moore and I will be 48 tomorrow. So, it, well, no, I'll be 40. You won't be that old. What are, what are you? 40 oh, to be that young. Okay. Have you ever read in the King James Version when it talks about uh, necromancy? You ever read that? Necromancy. It's funny because I grew up reading the King James Version and it was just another word I didn't understand. Okay? And it's in the context of God said to his people, when you go into the land of Canaan, don't you dare do the things the Canaanites do. I hate their ways. Now that's strong. I hate the ways of the Canaanites. And as you know, I believe the Canaanites were gigantic. I hate the ways of the Canaanites. He said, don't do their sorcery. And he starts listing off the things. And as a matter of fact, how many of you remember when King Saul, toward the end of his reign as the king of Israel, found a Canaanite witch to come and to call the soul of the dead back to life. And Samuel, the prophet, came to him. How many of you remember this? in scripture it never says that Saul went that's not really Samuel Scripture
scripture says Samuel came from the, from the dead, his spirit, and he spoke with Saul. I mean, this is remarkable stuff. He said, don't practice their witchcraft, their divination, their sorcery, their necromancy. You know what necromancy, are we all grown up enough in here I can go there? Parents, can you walk your kids through this later? Thank you. Okay. You know what necromancy is? It was when they would call a demonic spirit that they might have intercourse with it. Inquiring minds want to know. I never even knew that. It's just another word in the scriptures. I didn't even know what it meant. Until I, let me ask you this. Do you believe that God is a God of peace and order? Would God give us a command to stay away from something if it wasn't possible? Why would God say, don't have sexual relation with the dead, with the demonic, if you couldn't do it? How many feel encouraged today? (laughs) This Sunday school Jesus that we grew up with and just this little story, and Noah and the ark, and woo, eh? there is so much more here than we've ever imagined. Now, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up. I'm not going to, this next week, I'm sharing with you the prophetic things in Noah's life that point to Jesus's life, and how Jesus's life is supposed to point that we do the same thing right now, because we're in the days of Noah, and we need that, we need, so next week, none of this will be hit again, but I, I feel compelled to share one more thing with you. How many remember that in the scriptures it says that they, they didn't kill all of the people in Canaan or all of those tribes they battled, but they drove them out? Now, you might know them. How many in history, in history class learned about the Phoenicians? Did you know that the Canaanites and the Phoenicians were the same group of people? So we dropped the phrase Canaanites somehow, and they became known as the Phoenicians. When they were driven from the land of Israel... There's great evidence that they landed on the island of Sardinia. Sardinia is off the west coast. Thank you, John. Off the west coast of Italy. So they went around Italy, and they landed in the area of Sardinia. As a matter of fact, there are monuments on Sardinia. You can actually find them on Google Maps, which is amazing, where they built monuments for what they call the tombs of the giants. I'm sure it's just a phrase, but they have monuments for the tombs of the giants, and when you look at them from the aerial picture, how many are familiar with the symbol of bull, or Baal, where the bull horns come up, and the real kind of, the angled face, the monuments from the aerial are the horns of a bull, of a bull and the face of a bull, and on Sardinia, boys, when they go through their rite of passage, uh, you know what we do, rite of passage now is Snapchat. But back in the day, rite of passage was when a child was 12 or 13, they would go into these monuments and they would sit in there and they would try to meditate and connect with the spirit of the giant below them because they believed that the giant was sending signals up through the earth to them. As a matter of fact, on the island of Sardinia, it's the only place outside of of Canaan where you can find the spheres that were built to dedicate to Moloch and to Babylon and the huge sacrificial stone where they would cut their children and sacrifice. Those are in Canaan and they're on Sardinia. 
great evidence that the Canaanites landed there. As a matter of fact, when you watch interviews, they refer even now to their grandparents being over eight feet tall as it's kind of worked its way. Now, what's interesting is they traveled from Sardinia and they went west. As you can see, at the northwest corner of Europe, you have Spain, north, or excuse me, southwest. Northwest corner of Africa, you have Morocco. And right here, as you go through the Straits of Gibraltar, you have Tangier. Everybody heard of Tangier? used to be Tangis, but it's called Tangier now. There was a discovery made in 500 AD, just outside of Tangier. There was a monument that was constructed with huge pillars, and this is recorded by not a Jew, not a Protestant, but an Arab historian. Let's go ahead and share the quote with them, John. The quote that was inscribed on the monument outside Tangier was simply this. We are the Canaanites who fled before the face of Joshua the robber, the son of Nun. How many know that Joshua the son of Nun was the very Joshua that went into the promised land? The Canaanites, known as the Phoenicians, matter of fact, if you read this, I've got the documents. Actually, I have photos of the documents. But if you read this, they actually talk about saying, um, the giants lived around Tangier as all Arabs are aware because they wanted the, us to know that they knew even though the rest of us didn't. As all Arabs are aware. As a matter of fact, there's historical... Do you guys like this stuff? Are you way done but you're kind of into it still a little bit? Because I, I want to give you what I gave the first service. You know when you... Thank you. When you look at the Phoenician boats, and we've all seen the... Remember how the Phoenician boats, how they... You couldn't tell which one was the front and which one was the back. They always, yeah, thank you. You have this, this classic imagery where they kind of look the same from the front or the back, okay? What's interesting is in the Great Lakes region of the Americas, there are artifacts dating back to long before we knew the Americas were here of Phoenician boats where they've literally chiseled the, the look of their boats into, into artifacts up in the northern great... Have you ever heard of the Diupers up in northern Michigan? Up in Diuper territory. Now, the reason they were here, in northern Michigan, if you've read much about the history of Michigan, there were great copper mines off the Great Lakes. As a matter of fact, it is said to be 99.9% .9 pure. And the reason I mention that is interesting is because, would you go back to that map uh, that you have for me, John? Because what's interesting is when you go straight west, you can go through Port Alexander in northern Canada and go through the waterways right into the, into the Great Lakes region where the copper mines were, where there just happens to be some old artifacts of a Phoenician boat. There just happens to be thousands of mounds around the Great Lakes region. How many grew up in the Northeast? You know what I'm talking about. Like the Cahokia Mounds, where it was rumored where giant bones were buried. And guess what happens to be on Sardinia? Copper that they've traced back to Michigan. That's where the Phoenicians were going back and forth. Now, we all knew the Phoenicians were going back and forth. We were told that in history. We just didn't happen to know they were giants. We didn't happen to know that they fled from Joshua the robber, the son of Nun. I'm done. I, I've done. 
Oh, no, I'm not done. Amos 2.9. Let's put this, just to fry your free holies, put this up here. We need to auction some kids. How many of you will pay more if I'll just, how many of you just go ahead and go for it? You'll just start paying, and I could go all day on this stuff. I find it fascinating. Uh, this is from the New American Standard. It's not, you don't even have to go to the Septuagint. God is speaking to his people through the prophet Amos, and he's saying, he's basically rebuking them for being fearful and not stepping forth in faith. And he refers to the Amorite, and as we said earlier, remember when they faced the Amorites, God sent hail from heaven to help them win that battle. Look what he says. Yet it was I, God, I who destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks, I even destroyed his fruit above and his root below. God, in encouraging his people, and I'll do the same thing for you today, why would you not step out in faith when you have a God that was willing to destroy a giant as tall as a cedar tree? Those aren't my words. Those are his words. I realize some of you are miserably uncomfortable with this thing. I get it. Mythological stories come from somewhere, especially when all over the earth they have the same stories. They come from somewhere. And I think it's time that we Christians start going, you know what, I serve a God that crushed an Amorite that God said his height was like the height of a cedar. And then we start, we're, I mean, we're Christians and we're faithless at times and we'll go, well, I wonder if it was the fully grown cedar. You know, eight-foot ceilings, you need it for Christmas. Can we fit it in with the stand? Is it going to, right? How strong was he? As the oaks. Where's all this going? I don't know. But I'm here to tell you, just coming forward and saying, Jesus, forgive me of my sins and come into my heart. It's so much deeper than that. There is an enemy with an agenda. He still wants the planet and he's crazy enough to think that he's going to get it. How many know that when you're living in deception, you don't even know it? And the longer you're deceived, the worse it gets. He's the father of lies. He's been, he's been believing his lies for a long time. He's so, de he's so deceived, he doesn't even get it. But he's going to try to accomplish his agenda. And greater is he that is in me than he that's within the world. All right. Next week, it'll be some prophecy stuff. But uh, for 2017, as in the days of Noah, this stuff is concluded. You receive it? Or, no, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, if we will have, I mentioned it to the first, God bless Facebook, we'll see you guys soon. Uh, in August, we're going to have a Faith Chapel movie night. And there is a documentary where guys have put in the hours and hours of research, and you can track... Just so easily, you can track the spread of the giants from Canaan throughout the, throughout the Western Hemisphere. And we're going to do a Faith Chapel movie night. And I haven't researched all of their sources, but I will tell you this. Every source I've researched at this point has been true. Every one of them has been true. And so we'll do it. We'll do it on a Friday. If you do it on a Sunday and it's wrong, we, we go to hell. But if you do it on a Friday and you have popcorn, it makes it okay. All right, let's, let's stand together. Let's stand together.